Welcome to the Ragged Scratch podcast, presented by Ragged Falls Productions. I'm your host, Natalie. If you've already listened to episode one, we're glad to have you back. Thank you. If you're joining us for the first time with this episode, don't worry, we're only just getting into the flow of things ourselves, and all the players we're presenting are standalone, so you can listen to the podcast in any order. One of the things I love about new writing nights and scratch nights is the variety of material that you get to see as an audience member. And if something doesn't work for you or it's not your favourite genre, that's fine because there's something new and completely different just around the corner. And I've sought to replicate that experimental chocolate box of goodies feel for this podcast. With that in mind, coming up later for your listening delights, we have I'm Fine, Honestly Fine, where Susie is trying to convince us that she's not just made a terrible mistake. And I chat to writer Tracy Hayward about finding audio drama inspiration from writing her novel. But first, we head to the cloisters and corridors of Rome in the year 1580 to eavesdrop on a conversation between two cardinals. The Penitent is a Little Cheerful was written by Alice Wilson, directed by Bill Thomas, edited by Kirsty Gilmore, and stars Paul Waggett as Clement and Robert Vernon as Francisco. Francisco, do you have a moment? I do. Have you seen it yet? The painting? <laughs> no. I'll see it at the unveiling. You? I've had a glimpse. Has the Pope seen it yet? Not as far as I'm aware. How do you get a look? Oh, the painters used my mistress as a model before. Which mistress? <laughs> I only have the one, Francisco. I forget. What's it like? The painting, that is. I'm not convinced the Pope will like it. Why? Thought this man was the talk of the town. It might be a bit modern. It's an altarpiece. Can't have done anything too awful. Well, the angels do have all their regulation wings. What's wrong with it, then? The penitence. Their flagellation is very energetic. You could say they're enjoying it. Energetic is good. Artistic vim and all that. But altarpieces should be a little boring, no? And no one wants their sermon overshadowed by the rippling chests of the angels behind them. So the issue of sexuality. It's happened before. I mean, Michelangelo. The muscle definition raised questions. No, not that. It, it, oh, it's just... It's just? Had you ever thought of the Son of God as a real person before? I am a cardinal. The thought had passed my mind. What did you do in the seminary? Oh, sorry, I forgot. You skipped school. Appointment by patronage alone is ruining the intellectual foundations of the church. Always said it. We share a patron. I came to him later in life. Anyway, continue. I'd never... There was something horrible about it. Something grotesque. All the bone and sinew and the blood. 
It made me think he was just a person, you know? He had a liver and a heart, and we put him at the center of the whole church. He was the son of God. Not while he was on Earth. He was just a person, and all of our guilt and rubies can't hide it. Walls have ears. This is heresy. It's art criticism. <laughs> Little difference. Oh, I'm hardly Martin Luther. I've done well out of the church. What's wrong? It's... our piety. We commission beautiful pictures and they disturb us, so we'll put them high up in a church where no one can see. Everyone looks upwards on their knees. Uh, when was the last time you felt God? Last night. Someone was on their knees. I'm being serious. So am I. I'm no ascetic. We ought to celebrate what God has given us. It's <laughs> a very easy answer. Look, the painting might have given you some crisis of fate, but the Pope won't really look at it. He knows nothing about art. His advisors will tell him it meets current standards, and he'll give the artist a vineyard, and no one will bat an eyelid if the Son of God looks disturbingly frail. What about the congregation? What about the congregation? Undue influence, the promotion of heresy, the potential laxening of the vice-like grip of the church on the city. These are the reasons the regulations on artistic practice exist. The congregation won't care. They'll see what they expect to see. They'll have a look at Mary in a blue robe and go about their day. Some people will stop and stare. They couldn't not. He looks... They'd be heretics anyway. We only care about the masses. A few will always be loose cannons. The possibility doesn't concern you? Of course it concerns me, but the city is recovering from plague. A painting is not exactly my most important concern. No one's ever gone to war for a painting. We'll be fine. Doesn't it worry you that a painting can look like that? Artistic talent is a gift from God. It's paint. It's paint on a canvas, and it looks so... catastrophically real. I really think you're overreacting. Oh, do you remember the first time you saw an image of the crucifixion? No. No, it's always been there. I do. I was four, and I looked upwards in the chapel at my grandfather's house, and there was a... A long, starved man hanging there, blood dripping from his wrists, his hair limp and clinging to his neck, and he had this expression of absolute ecstasy, like he was transfigured by it. Have you been talking to Barameo? He's very into this sort of thing, visualization, that if you see Jesus in your mind's eye, Strengthens your faith or something. I have had one original thought in my life. <laughs> I thought you were a loyal lapdog. I've been known to do as my uncle asks. Your uncle, the Pope? How do you become a cardinal then? Honest flattery. Sorry, you were talking about your childhood fantasies? Go on. Have you never had a profound experience? Never looked at something and had it shake you to your very core. I was on a pilgrimage once. And I saw an icon of Mary. I was tired, I was hungry, and I hadn't seen anyone for days. She was very calm. And very beautiful. 
I will... Relieved an urge. To Mary? Not proud of myself, but seemed appropriate at the time. God, well, I, I didn't really expect... Um... I'm a simple man. It's paint. What can it do? It's a very lovely symbol of power. Sometimes makes the masses cry. If they cry at Jesus, they'll do anything for us. You're very cynical. You're a cardinal in the Catholic Church. I just want to believe in art. And God. And, and maybe also people. How adorable. Would it be so bad to love something absolutely? Someone has to convince the Pope the painting's not a crime. It'd be easier if I don't pay too much attention. I not like quite so much then. You wouldn't regret it. Thank you for the forewarning. I ought to go see the Pope. Give him my best. You'll see him soon enough. <laughs> I don't think I'll be at the unveiling. It's the place to be seen. Everyone will be there. I expect you'll end up stood very near the Pope. I don't think I can do it. Watch everyone in their self-satisfied pomp and circumstance. No one really looking at the picture. No, I'm all right. Where will you go? The whorehouse? In search of a more authentic form of experience? Maybe I'll go for a walk along pleasant Roman roads. Good luck getting pickpocketed. I'd rather that than other crimes. We're all complicit. You could join a brotherhood and live in Hessian and you'd still be complicit. We could try. Something else, another life. Something where none of us wear robes like this. And we love art as it should be loved. Not because of its accordance to some arbitrary set of rules, but because it's true and painful and good. You won't throw this life away. And I don't want to. Certainly not because a painting's not been appreciated properly. Oh, it's bigger than the painting. You're a cardinal. Should have had this crisis earlier. Come out of it dead-eyed and cynical and we'll work together well. Now, I have to go and meet the Pope. I'll send my uncle my best. Wait, Francisco, find me afterwards. Tell me what you think. Clement, we're too old for this. Go on, have a look at it. Tell me what you think. Where will you be? I don't know. The whorehouse. Find me. I'm going to find the Pope. And then? I'm sure the Pope can spare me a while. Okay, so I am here with Alice Wilson, the writer of The Penitent is a Little Cheerful. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your writing background? So I'm currently a student. I'm at Oxford studying classics. This is sort of only the second thing I've ever had sort of written or performed, which is very exciting. My writing background is basically that I spent my teenage years writing really embarrassing poetry uh, <laughs> and have recently started getting into writing for drama. Amazing. So in terms of what you usually write, you said short stories and poetry. Do you have a favourite kind of genre or style that you like writing in or, or medium? I think I'm quite indifferent as a medium at the moment because I think I'm, because I'm sort of just starting out and exploring things. I think I'm trying yeah. to write in as many different ways as possible. Sure. No, that, yeah, that's fair yeah. enough. So um, in terms of 
audio is this the first piece that you've written for audio or was it written just as a general drama piece and you've decided actually that would work quite well as a radio play yeah so I wrote it um as a general drama piece but then sort of realized that there was nothing about it that was there was like no kind of like physical action and then I sort of oh actually this would work quite well as a radio piece but it was really interesting having to think about like what what are the visual cues that would otherwise be there um, yeah. that you have to communicate in audio. So I found that really interesting. Great. And so let's focus on, so you're doing classics at university. Yeah. Um, so what is your relationship, your personal relationship with uh, ecclesiastical arts? Like, have you, are you studying it as part of your course? Have you studied it before? Were you brought up with an interest? I wasn't brought up religious, but we went to a lot of churches for the sake of the art. Um, but I've always really had quite intense feelings about churches that aren't religious, but are just kind of, I don't know, there's something about being in that space and being in, around so much artwork and and something about the way the whole thing is designed. Is I kind of am a, a bit obsessed with religious art just because I want to understand why it makes me feel the way it does. Mm. And in terms of um, this specifically, I was reading a biography of Caravaggio mm-hmm. on the wall to and from work and just got really really into it okay so going back to the penitent is a little cheerful the way you've written it 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 feels like there's there's a lot more going on in the relationship between Clemente and Francisco than they are just fellow cardinals there's there's some intriguing history or potentially future there so was this part of a wider piece or was it your intention to leave the audience wondering it wasn't it's not part of a wider piece at the moment I think I do quite like the kind of intriguing, wondering element of it, but mm. also it's intriguing me because I have no idea what their relationship is, to be mm. honest, and I quite want to figure it out. So I'm, I might have intrigued myself into wanting to write more about it. And I think actually for, for something like this or new writing nights where the audience sees or hears a lot of short pieces, that sense of intrigue and leaving them wanting more actually works very well. Yeah, I find it quite hard with a with pieces that are kind of this length to do the opposite and have it kind of all neatly tied up because it's only like, oh, ten minutes. What are you meant to do? How no, right, yeah. how are you meant to have a whole person like and whole stories finished in that time? I don't know if I lean on it too much as a way to finish things, but to kind of um, hint at something else as or like a wider backstory as a way to kind of finish, I quite like. Mm. So, um, final questions, a little bit off topic, but personally, I would love to know more about the Blue Stockings yeah. project you, oh, you yeah. named in your Twitter bio. Could you tell us more about that and how you got involved? Okay, so um, Blue Stocking is a online journal of women's intellectual history, um, which is uh, run by people at Oxford. It's kind of Oxford-based, but not exclusive. So it's just sort of thing that was set up by students, I think like 10 years ago. Um, I'm currently the editor. So we uh, look for pieces which are about women's intellectual history. It can be sort of like literature, art, um, science, uh, maths, covers the, you know, the entire um, historical range. And it's really, really, I really enjoy editing pieces because it's a really cool way to get introduced to a lot of things. Like people will just pitch me something and I'll have no idea about the person. Um, but I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I definitely want to read an article about that. And then they'll, it's so cool because then they just send me a thing. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is so interesting. And I think the aim is uh, with Tome, we're sort of going with stuff that's academic, but accessible. So it's, it's like a very, um, it's like a really proper treatment of each um, person, but in a way that's also, you know, engaging um, and fun to read. It's a kind of like real concentration on what they do rather than just being like, oh, you know, ooh, it's a woman. Um, yeah. Um, thinking about the way that they've contributed to and changed and shaped their fields and 
kind of intellectual history more widely I find um, really really fascinating so it's really cool to be part of. No it, it, it does sound really interesting and I'm, I'm looking forward to having some spare time to delve into some of the articles because it sounds yeah. very cool. Thank you so much for being yeah. on the podcast we'll wrap it up there. Where can people find you if they want to follow your work? Obviously you are a student so that should take precedence but. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on Twitter at A-R-W-L-O-I. But otherwise people can find Blue Stockings Project at you can find Blue Stocking at blue-stocking.org.uk. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Alice. Thank you very much for having me. And if you'd like to hear more from our actors, we have two shout-outs this week. Paul Waggett, who played Clement just then, is also in another podcast series called The Offensive, a behind-the-scenes football mockumentary series produced by Radio Stakhanov. Robert Vernon, who played Francisco, is in a feature folk horror film, The Village in the Woods, releasing online in the UK on Amazon, Google Play, iTunes and the Sky Store on the 14th of October. Links to both projects alongside where to find all our creatives this week are in the show notes, so please do go check those out. Next up, were you ever rejected by someone and just really wanted them to say, I was wrong about you? Susie is doing well for herself, but just can't resist when a certain ex-boyfriend gets back in touch. I'm Fine, Honestly Fine was written by Tracy Hayward, directed and edited by Lorraine Ansell, and stars Lindsay Morrell as Susie and Raphael von Blumenthal as Jack. OK, I've got something to tell you. I know you're not going to like it. So just let me explain the full story before you react, okay? I think you'll find it all makes sense. I'm fine. Honestly, fine. So, I was scrolling through Facebook last Sunday morning, nursing a hangover and judging other people. Then suddenly, it happened. A message popped up on Facebook. You have one unread message from Jack Cornerstone. Without warning, my hands were shaking and sweating. My heart was racing. Everything was just moving so fast and so slowly at the same time. I couldn't breathe. I opened the message, wondering if this was a mistake or spam or something. But there it was. A message from Jack Cornerstone. Hey, Susie. Saw an article in The Standard on your play. It was a surprise to see, but I am happy for you. Would be great to catch up. Jack. Kiss. Well, I just didn't know what to think. I read it again. Two, three, four, five, six times. Hey, Susie. Saw an article in The Standard on your play. It was a surprise to see, but I am happy for you. Would be great to catch up. Jack. Kiss. The tone of the message. It was just so weird and incongruous. It was friendly and warm and happy and normal and not Jack. I cast my memory back to the last time we spoke to see if I was being strange here. As you know, it was ten years ago now, on the last day of term at Hull University, by the football pitch. We were 21 and I was madly in love. I don't get why you're trying to make me feel bad. We weren't even a proper couple, it was just a bit of fun. <laughs> just a bit of fun? How can you possibly say that? On Tuesday, I proofread your entire 5,000 word essay overnight when I was meant to be out with my mates for our final party. 
I asked you if it was fine, and you said it was. <laughs> I thought I was being a supportive girlfriend. Well, I don't know where you got that idea from. You have been sleeping with me for the past three months. I washed your clothes. I collected your post. I returned your books to the library. I paid your library fine. It was £12.62. and pence. You never repaid me. I thought you just wanted to be helpful. Well, I did. And now you're saying we were never a couple. Susie, you have to remember, I'm a child of divorce. I'm complicated. I'm creative. I'm an artist and on the cusp of a burgeoning career. I couldn't settle down with anyone. Also, I never said we were a couple. Okay, but... Plus, if I was going to be in a relationship with someone, they'd have to be way smarter than you. So that was it. We hate Jack. Jack is a bad man. An evil man. We all know that. But we all have that dream, don't we? That one day you'll be successful at something, and that person who said you weren't good enough will finally say, I was wrong about you. That's the dream. And now I am working in the theatre, and because I stalk him once every six months or so, nothing serious, I was 99% certain he still worked in IT. So I thought, this was it. This is my chance to make Jack Cornerstone say, I was wrong about you. And all of that insecurity about not being smart enough will go, and I will finally be absolved. So I messaged him back. Hey Jack, good to hear from you. It's been years. Would love to see you again for a catch-up. I know what you're thinking, but it's not like that. I know I used to be obsessed with him, but I'm not anymore. I am a woman now, not a lovesick teenager, but it was perfect timing. As you know, I had that interview about my play with the journalist from the London Theatre booked in at a restaurant on South Bank on Friday. So I thought I would arrange to meet him beforehand, then drop into the conversation casually. I was being interviewed by a journalist as an up-and-comer. Then I would finally get to hear him say those words. Susie, I was wrong about you. So on Friday, we arranged to meet at the bar I suggested. We met outside the bar and he broke into a loud, Suze! Then went in for a hug and one, Mwah. two, Mwah. three Mwah. kisses on the cheek, which I thought was very European for a boy from Reading. We ordered drinks and sat down and we chatted. It's good to see you, Susie. Oh, thanks for coming all the way to South Bank. I know it's out of your way. It's fine. I love this part of London. I'm often here with the creative group of people I hang out with. We see shows, go to lectures, films, poetry readings. There's a place just down the road from here we go to all the time that serves very, very authentic Latin American food with live Cuban music. Have you ever had authentic Latin American food, Susie? Um, I don't know. Maybe? Anyway, thank you for agreeing to meet me at South Bank. I have a meeting straight after with a journalist from the London Theatre magazine and they asked me to meet here to talk about my play because apparently... Ah, yes. Your play. This was it. This was my moment. I was finally going to get to hear him say those words. I was wrong about you. It's funny, isn't it? People write things all the time. There's hundreds and thousands of unpublished books, unproduced plays and screenplays out there. Then all of a sudden, a certain trend comes around and the money men decide what's going to be a hit and stuff gets made and people eat it up like sheep. Because that's what they're told to do. Which wasn't quite what I was expecting. But I know, 
He is evil. Still, I wasn't giving up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is funny. I'm actually working with a new group of really interesting people at the moment on my next play. We have Ronald Juggins, who's been working on the West End for 50 years, and he's playing this character I wrote who... Why have you written another play? Well, I'm a playwright. It's in the name. Play... right? <laughs> I wouldn't go that far to call yourself a playwright, Susie. <laughs> You're hardly bashing out this generation's Shakespeare, are you? <laughs> no. No, I'm not. Anyway, Ronald Juggins. You know, if you're wanting to do an interview or something to drum up a little local PR, I could call in a favour from an old mate of mine who works in the Bromley Gazette. I can explain that you're desperate to get bums on seats. He could probably help you out. He's a sub-ed there and he's had his feet under the desk for quite some time, if you know what I mean. <laughs> We've been friends now for over 15 years, so... I, I have interviews. I have an interview in 45 minutes over there with Lonnie Hawks from the London Theatre. Lonnie Hawks? Yes, Lonnie Hawks. I've never heard of him. Well, the London Theatre has apparently, and they've asked him to come here to interview me because my play now has a 12-week run. At... Martin Schull is his name. Whose name? My old mate at the Bromley Gazette who I can ask to do you a favour. Okay, well that's nice. But I think I already have a five-star review from the theatre reviewer at the Bromley Gazette. Though, I would need to check with my PR guy. Why do you have a PR guy? Because of my play. The production team hired a guy from a communications agency who's worked with a lot of up-and-coming plays on and off the West End to get them PR. But your play isn't on at the West End. Yes, I know. It isn't yet, anyway. Yet? <laughs> Look, she thinks she's Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> I don't think I'm Andrew Lloyd Webber, but we hired this guy from this communications agency who's been able to get me a few interviews and arrange a few reviews in a few theatre publications, local press and some national press. Journalism nowadays is all meaningless. Basically, they're willing to post anything as a paid advertorial for cash and claim it's journalism. Well, we pay the communications firm, we don't pay the publication. That's how you think it works, do you? These guys are just writing these things out of the goodness of their hearts. No, I don't think it's out of the goodness of their hearts. It's because it's their job, as theatre reviewers, to review theatre. Anyway, let me put a call into old Marty and see if he'll do a favour for a mate and get you a review. Okay, thank you. So anyway, Ronald Juggins. You're entirely welcome, Rachel. It's great to have the opportunity to pay it forward and help out an old mate of mine from uni. We had some good times, didn't we? Yeah. Yes, we did. Where was I? Ronald Juggins. Who? He's an actor working on my new play. He's worked at the West End for over 50 years. He's also done some film work over the years, and he's actually worked with Isaac Mina in the past, who, if I remember rightly, Jack, was a favourite avant-garde film director of yours. Which Isaac Mina film? Um, I think it was something about a flower, petal, fallen? I don't recognise him. Well, you haven't seen him. Exactly. Well, anyway, I know you were a really big fan of Isaac Mina, so I thought you might want to come down to rehearsals one day and meet him and ask about Isaac's filming process. If you want me to come down to rehearsals, I could come and take a look at your little play and give you some hints and tips of the biz from a... Professional screenwriter. You're a professional screenwriter. 
How does one define professional? Getting paid for your work? Well, I have been writing since I was 11, and I've studied film up until a master's level, so I think I can come and cast a professional eye over whatever it is you're trying to do. Okay, great. We'll be rehearsing in a space in Old Street from 5.15 onwards. Oh, no. Uh, I'm ever so sorry. I, I can't come at 5.15. Not all part-timers, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm working, and I can't get out early. My boss would wring my neck. <laughs> I'm working for a London-based charity called Jumpers from Jumpers. It's a huge international operation that works with sporting venues across the country. We host charity collection boxes at ticketing offices that collect for many poor third-world countries across the world and provides them with clothing. Jumpers from Jumpers, you see? I do. Anyway, I'm working on a pretty big project right now to enable sports fans to donate when buying tickets online. The software needs to be signed off by my MD this week, and I'm the main guy who's getting everything done there. <laughs> so yeah, I can't get off early, I'm afraid. It's just too much going on. Ah, uh, as ever. Okay, what time can you get there? I can make 5.30. 5.30 would be perfect. No problem. I'll see you then. Glad to help you out. So you see, I am not seeing Jack again. I'm just inviting him to take a look at my play, and then afterwards, we're going out for some authentic Latin American food. Don't look at me like that. I am not getting sucked back in again. I am simply giving him another opportunity to say, I was wrong about you. And if I don't get it then, I have another chance, when he takes me out to see the new subtitled French film at the Ritzy on Wednesday. Honestly, you don't need to worry about me. I'm fine. Honestly. Fine. Tracy, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your writing background beyond what they've just heard? So I've lived in London for about eight years now. Um, I live in South East London with my husband and my dog, Toby, and I work in publishing. I've been writing properly now for about two years. Um, beforehand, I was one of those writers who came up with ideas and then gave up at the first hurdle. So for the last two years, I've been trying to not do that and try and get something accomplished. So for the last 18 months, I've been writing my debut novel, You and I, which is about two female friends going into adulthood, trying to find belonging in worlds where they don't belong in. And if I write something that doesn't fit the style of the novel, but I really love it, then I'll try and work out how to adapt it into another form. And from mm. that, I've written a couple of short stories and this audio drama. Oh, fantastic. When's the, the novel due to be out? Is it uh, still a work in progress? Oh, yeah, very much work in progress. I've about 40,000 words into my first draft at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, so I think another 18 months until it's finished. Fair enough. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for it then. <laughs> so I hope the answer is no, because no one deserves that kind of negativity in their lives. But is Jack based off a real person or is your interest in writing this type of relationships based off your personal experience? Or you don't have to go into obviously super personal <laughs> detail. Uh, no, I think I, I really like... Um, writing about people's experience with interacting with other people and how other people's agendas can really affect how you feel about yourself and how you interact with other people mm. and Jack was this a personification of a personality that I kind of really only noticed and became aware of in my 30s which is when people like to put out sparks of joy in other people so if they yeah. see you just like oh this happened they'll be like 
I uh, can't stand for that. And mm-hmm. um, so they'll do things like say that, you know, you shouldn't be excited about that or it isn't a big deal or you don't deserve it or imply that you're silly to get excited about it or you're too full of yourself or or just kind of deny your version of events. And it's sort of raining on someone's parade by any means necessary. And it gives the person doing it this unearned power over you. And I was completely oblivious to people might be doing that. Uh, up until about I got to a certain age of maturity I was like oh that's what you're doing you're just trying to stop my happiness (laughs) and Jack was kind of a way of writing about that desperate need like I cannot have your version of events be reality I have to take that from you I'm Fine Honestly Fine came out of me wanting to write something for my novel that had really good conflict working within dialogue and it also being quite funny. Frasier is a great example of where you can see that or, or the marvellous Mrs Maisel. I really wanted to write something in that style and set that challenge for myself and I wrote it and I was like oh I've basically written an audio drama here and then you can't really write in he interrupted her she tried to get out it just takes yeah. away from it and then I realised also that the, the humour only exists if it's kind of read in the right way with the right beats and directed, sort of directing that yourself within the novel. It's just not going to work. So I was like, I have just written an audio play. But yeah, it was the first time I'd written it and it is really fun compared to writing a novel because once you're so far into a novel, you're really bound by the character development that you've planned and the plot development. And so you can have these really lovely ideas that just don't work within that. Mm. with audio you are just jumping into a moment for 10 minutes and it gives you a lot of freedom and then it's also quite an interesting challenge in itself and that you have to get people to really understand your characters just with the the script and the voice Mm. and without saying and her bedroom was like this and her world is like this. So on the application form when you applied we asked about um, whether the genders, ethnicities, ages, physical abilities of the characters were important and you said no, not really. So this time when I was casting, I chose to keep the genders of Susie and Jack as you wrote them. But do you think doing a gender swapped version or a same gender version would have told a completely different story? Or do you think there's just those universal elements of those red flag behaviours and people wanting to diminish your spark? Uh, I think that's quite an interesting question. I think yes, yes and no. I think a lot of the things that cause problems for Susie that come from her character come from character traits that are encouraged on women and girls by the patriarchy in that, you know, being unfailingly polite in the face of somebody who isn't treating you that way back and really doesn't deserve it. And also naturally deferring to somebody's expertise that's actually not expertise when you have a lot of expertise in the subject area but at the same time I think the dynamics of their relationship you have one character that doesn't see her own value and is looking around people to define her own self-worth because she believes in others more than she believes in herself and then you have this other character who likes to feel in control and dominate um, and does so by putting other people down in just any way that he can get away with And I kind of think that that dynamic of those two characters that creates the conflict and the humour kind of could really exist in any number of different types of varieties of people. Great. Well, thank you so much for being part of the the Ragged Scratch podcast. Where can people find you online, find out more about you, keep an eye out for the novel when it comes out? You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Hayward 11 and I'll be posting all upcoming new developments and photos of my dog there. Amazing. I look forward to the photos of your dog, especially. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much, Tracy. Okay, great. Thank you. 
thanks once again to Alice, Paul, Robert, Bill, Tracy, Lindsay, Raphael, Lorraine and Kirsty for all their hard work on these pieces. And thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do go and give us a cheeky little review and a rating as it will help other people find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe. See you next week. The Ragged Scratch podcast, brought to you by Ragged Foils Productions, was produced and hosted by Natalie Winter. Play edits and sound engineering by Lorraine Ansell and Kirsty Gilmore. Episode edits by Natalie Winter. The Ragged Scratch podcast theme music was composed by Alex Jones. You can find us online at Ragged Foils across Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where we've been tagging this week's creatives so you can find out more about them and their work. <laughs>